1 Corinthians chapter 4 This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favour of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings, and would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honour, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labour, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love in a spirit of gentleness? I once received a chain letter entitled, The Perfect Pastor. The perfect pastor is tall, slim, athletic, good-looking, and doesn't leave anybody else feeling inadequate. He's 28 years old, and he has 25 years preaching experience. He preaches eternal truth in exactly 10 minutes, frequently condemns sin and social evils, and never upsets anyone. He works from 6am to 11pm, six and a half days a week, is also the groundsman, the cleaner, and never gets tired or grumpy. He spends much of his time visiting the sick and the contagious, and he never has a sick day. He earns $500 a week, wears good clothes, buys good books, drives a late model, well-maintained car, owns his own home, buys his own church resources, covers phone and internet charges himself, is generous to the poor, and tithes $100 a week to the church. 
the perfect pastor has limitless patience, gentleness, and kindness, but is also a strong and vigorous leader and decisive too. He gives of himself completely to others, but never gets too close to anyone, lest he be criticised for having favourites. A perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with teenagers, and he also spends all of his time with the senior citizens. He makes 15 visits daily to parish families, shut-ins and hospital patients. He takes RE, spends time getting to know the townsfolk. He meets regularly with the other ministers, delivers meals on wheels, is fully involved in the community and is always available at the church office or at the manse to receive phone calls or visitors. The perfect pastor is a person of deep spirituality and wide learning but of down-to-earth practicality, a capable administrator, a financial genius, a wise counsellor, an architect and a builder. If your pastor does not measure up to these expectations, simply send this letter to six other parishes that are tired of their pastors too. Then bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of the list. In one week, you should receive 1,643 pastors in return. At least one of these should be perfect. Warning, one parish broke the chain and they got their old minister back in less than three weeks. One of the advantages of preaching your way through a whole book of the Bible is the preacher doesn't get to choose the topic. And today's a topic that, well, to be honest with you, if it were up to me, I probably wouldn't have chosen it. Um, it's about the role and the purpose of a pastor and a teacher, or ministers or priests or whatever you want to call them. And it's about the relationship between these people and the people that they minister to. And there is a very real temptation for a pastor or a minister to avoid this topic. Why? Because we don't want to appear self-serving. Um, I'm just as reluctant to preach on this topic today as what I am whenever the topic of giving comes up. But God has brought this topic before us today because it's in his word. And with God's help, I'll do my best to help us to understand it. I guess what, have I, what I've observed in the church is sometimes a church has too high a view of a pastor and sometimes they have too low of a view of a pastor. Uh, so for instance, I remember when I was a member in our church in Dolby, um, and it was one of those churches that had an enormously high pulpit at the front. I think it was about four or five steps to get up to, to where you preach from. Um, anyway, we're having a church meeting because we were wanting to renovate the front. And we wanted to clear out that old pulpit and the communion rail and just have a one-step-up stage so that it would be a much more useful space. Um, anyway, in that meeting, one dear old lady said, Well, when I come to church, I like to be able to look up to our minister. Now, you see, that, that perspective comes from an era when a minister was put up on a pedestal of sorts. And even today, I've seen how some pastors are almost hero-worshipped by their congregation. By the way, I don't think we have that problem here, which is a good thing. Uh, but then again, sometimes churches have too low of a view of their pastors. I remember when I was a minister in a previous church, one of the elders with great sadness in his voice, said to me, we're a church that has a history of destroying its ministers. And he went on to tell me, I think it was 
He reckoned it was four of the, the, the last four ministers they had had been destroyed by the congregation or by certain people within the congregation. And those four men had left that church as broken men. Sometimes pastors cop it pretty hard. I remember the very first Sunday I preached at my previous church, I stood up front of everyone and I said, my aim is to make everybody happy. Some of you are going to be really happy that I came and the rest of you are going to be very happy when I leave. And we can make a joke of it, but let's have a look at what God has to say here in this passage to the Corinthians. From the tone of the letter to the Corinthians so far, it's pretty obvious that although Paul planted the church in Corinth and although he's the one who led them to Christ, he's now fallen out of favour. Um, they don't want to listen to Paul anymore because they disagree with him. And regarding apostles, teachers, ministers, Paul says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, notice who, who they are servants of. They are not servants of church members. They're not servants of church leaders. They're not servants of the congregation or of the community. They are servants of Christ. This is the calling of a minister. And as we'll see later in this same chapter, sometimes being a servant of Christ will put a minister at odds with others within the church and often particularly at odds against some leaders in the church. So they are servants of Christ and they are stewards of the mysteries of God. What does that mean? The mysteries of God have nothing to do with God being some kind of unsolvable puzzle. A mystery, biblically, is something which we didn't used to know, but now it's been revealed. In this case, been revealed by God. Okay, So the teaching of the Christian faith, the gospel itself, didn't used to be known. But now it's been revealed and it's been entrusted to the apostles, to the teachers, to the preachers to make it known. And as we found last week, and when we were looking at chapter 3, it's very important that the minister or the teacher gets the teaching right. And it's confirmed here again in verse 2 where it says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So for a minister to be a faithful steward of the revelation of God means that we have to get it right but it is also our duty to keep going with it and to not give up. I've known so many ministers who have had bad experiences in churches. And what happens? They burn out. They burn out and they withdraw and they've left the ministry that God has called them to. God has called them to be there and to be his faithful preachers and to keep on preaching. But they felt that they couldn't and they've fallen away. But a steward should be found faithful. And for a minister to be found faithful to his calling, he has to do it right and he has to keep on doing it. And for a minister to be able to keep on doing it, sometimes he has to grow a pretty thick skin. He has to understand this one truth. God is the only one who gets to judge his performance. Now, of course, we know this. 
But let me tell you how very, very hard it is for a minister not to worry about the judgment of others. Considering Christians are supposed to be the epitome of love and forgiveness and encouragement, it's quite disturbing how often in churches roast preacher gets dished up for Sunday lunch. But do you know who is most often the preacher's most harshest critic? The preacher. Did I do it right? Did I say the right words? What could I have done that things could have gone better? What could I have done that this person would understand? What could I have done so that this person might have made better choices? How could I have done it better? Now, when I have questions like that, I'm sure there's some of you who'd be very willing to fill me in and tell me how I could do it better. But you know what Paul said to the Corinthians? He said, I'm not going to be judged by you. I'm not even going to judge myself, he said. Now, it's obvious, though, that he's been examining himself all the time because he says, I'm not aware of anything that I've done wrong. But he says, not even that acquits me. Right? It is the Lord who will judge me, not me and not you. You see, a person can be very righteous in their own eyes. I can be very righteous in my own eyes and go, yeah, no, I've done everything right. But God can look at me and go, heh, heh, I don't think so. God sees things as they really are. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. God sees everything. He knows everything. He will shed light on everything that is hidden. And so therefore, it says, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Now, that doesn't at all mean that we shouldn't be discerning. And we'll get to that over the next few weeks. But what he's giving here is a a legal term. Do not pronounce judgment. Don't declare the verdict guilty. It's not our place to do it. In another place in the Bible it says, who am I to judge someone else's servant? Righto. Now, this is where it gets a bit interesting. Last week... And so far this week, we've heard a fair bit about the responsibility that that ministers and teachers have as they minister and as they teach. We will be judged by what we say and by what we do. And I hope I didn't turn off any young aspiring uh, preachers um, last week. I hope nobody felt, oh, golly, uh, the, the burden's just too great. I don't think I ever want to get up and preach God's word just in case I say the wrong thing and, and I, get, I get judged because of it. Um, but you can see the logic of it, can't you? You do understand how and why teachers are accountable to God. What we teach is very important. You get it? You agree? Yeah? Now, I'm pretty sure the Corinthian church, when they read this, would have gone, yeah, those apostles, those ministers, they're going to be held accountable all right. They're going to get their due. But now Paul turns the tables on them. And he tells them what he's been doing all along. When I first began learning to preach, a very wise minister said to me, don't preach at your congregation." Preach it yourself. He said, don't don't always use the word you. Use the word we or I. 
And particularly when there's a very difficult or a very hard lesson and when the word of God is particularly cutting, direct it at yourself. And let the spirit of God tell you here is that it's for them as well. So for example, last week when the passage talked about destroying the church, I said, if a person has been set apart for God as part of his holy church, no matter how imperfect that person may seem to me, if I destroy that person, or if I destroy that church, God will destroy me. Now, that's what I said last week. What did you learn from that? Did you learn, oh, Michael's walking on thin ice. He's going to have to pay dearly for what he's done. Or did the Holy Spirit move you to examine yourself? Did the Holy Spirit say to you, hey, this is for you too? When I gave that same message at Begonia in the afternoon, uh, just as I gave the opportunity in here for questions to, to discuss the reading and after the message, they actually took me up on it. And we had a really good discussion. And one person there said, but aren't we all teachers at some level? Every time we talk about God and share with non-Christian, even, even sharing our faith with our children, aren't we teaching? You see, they got it. Yeah, we are. And that's why we colour inside of the lines instead of drawing our own picture. And we'll come more to that shortly. But Paul said to them, I've been applying all of this to me and to Apollos. But it's really about you. He said the things, uh, sorry, the things that Paul had to say to the leaders in the Corinthian church were so hard and were so cutting that he applied them to himself and he applied them to his mate Apollos. And that's the irony. The Corinthian leaders would have gone, yeah, you're accountable, Paul. You surely are. Not realising the whole time that they pointing their finger at themselves. I keep on saying the Corinthians, but from the letter, it seems pretty clear that it's, it's just a few certain leaders of the Corinthian church who were behaving in this unchristlike way. And their teaching had gone way off track, which is why Paul said not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favour of one against the other. Right? So when that person at Begonia said, well, aren't we all teachers at some level? Uh, even when I, when I share my faith with, with the children, is this a warning for us too? Well, well, yes, it is. So, well, the next question is, well, well, how can we know that we're teaching what is right? How can we know that what we're saying, we're not going to be judged by. Well, it's easy. Don't go beyond what's written. Colour inside of the lines. Don't draw your own picture. Where the scriptures are very clear on an issue, teach it, share it. Teach it with, to your children with every confidence. But you know what? Some of the biggest disasters that I've seen with divisions in churches is where people take a stand on something where the scriptures aren't 100% clear one way or the other. Or sometimes the, the scriptures get twisted so that in their mind, the scriptures agree with their own position. Or 
They just take one or two isolated verses and construct a whole theology without taking into account what the scriptures as a, as a whole say about it. So if you want to be confident that you are teaching correctly, don't go beyond what's written. Don't ever take a hard line stand on a debatable issue. Don't puff yourself up in a fit of self-righteous zeal and destroy your brother or sister in Christ in the process. And we have to realise this works both ways. Some people have a natural tendency towards legalism. Some people have a natural tendency towards licence. That means to just do whatever they feel good, what makes them feel good. So don't go beyond what is written in either of these. So if, so if it's somebody who has a natural tendency towards license where they're just looking for justification so that they can do what they want to do, don't go beyond what's written. If the scriptures are clearly against what you are wanting to do, don't go beyond that. Likewise, for somebody who has a leaning towards legalism where they were looking for a rule and a regulation to impose upon somebody, if somebody's that way inclined, don't go beyond what is written. If the scriptures don't clearly condemn it, or if, if the scriptures are showing that there is now freedom from this in the New Testament, don't judge another person by these things. And don't go beyond what is written when we're defining what we do or don't believe. So a good example of this could be teaching of end times. Many people have very different views of what to expect in the lead up to when Jesus returns. Why do we have such divergent views? Well, it's because God hasn't given us all the answers. But the trouble is, a lot of us, we want to fill in the missing bits. And so churches have divided over this very issue. They've gone beyond what is written. And they take the attitude, well, if you don't believe this, then you're not welcome in this church. So we just don't go beyond what's written. Right, we're getting there. Stay with me. This next bit, uh, we Australians shouldn't have too much trouble getting it. Why? Because we're really good at sarcasm. Um, you, you thought godly men were above sarcasm, didn't you? Well, no, they're not. Uh, Paul's written it right here in our New Testaments. Reading from verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you've become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share that rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honour, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed, we're buffeted and homeless, we labour, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless, when persecuted, we endure, when slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, like the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. You know, sometimes we think of pastors or ministers as people who couldn't make it in the real world. And, and I have a confession to make. 
Um, in the past, there have been times when I've th thought of certain ministers as, well, they're just in it for the money. You know, they, they couldn't get a better job elsewhere. But in reality, most ministers I know, well, they're men who had good jobs. They were highly respected in their profession. They were destined for promotion. They were people on the path to success. But then God said to them, leave behind what the world counts as success. I'm calling you to the ministry as your vocation. And from that moment, they've entered a life of a new level of sacrifice like that they've never known before. And there may be somebody here today who God is calling to leave behind what the world counts as success because God is calling you to be a servant of Christ, because God is calling you to be a steward of the mysteries of God, because God is calling you to go to a church and to preach the good news and to teach the scriptures. And if God is calling you to that, then you need to listen. But here's this Corinthian church. Their leaders were so puffed up. Oh, we can do it better without you. Look how well things are going for us. You know, you, you think that we've gone off track, but look how successful we are. And by the world standards, maybe everything was going okay for the church in Corinth. You know, a lot of Christians have this attitude that, hey, if it's of God, it'll be easy. It'll be a success. If it's not of God, it'll be hardship and maybe a failure. That was the attitude of the leaders of the Corinthian church. But that attitude is so wrong. Paul is the one who is living the example that the Corinthians should be following. You see, it's not only ministers who are called to a life of sacrifice. Anyone who would dare to be a disciple of Jesus is called to the way of the cross and called to a life of sacrifice. You know, when, when the leaders of a church get puffed up, often they begin to see the minister as their servant instead of being Christ's servant. In verse 12, it says there, when insulted or abused, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered or when bad things are said about us, we entreat. That means we encourage. And sadly, for a minister, way too often, the insults, the persecution, the slander, well, it comes from within a church. And puffed up leaders expect that the minister should just take it. And the thing is, they do. Not because they're weak, but because they're strong. Not because they're servants of the church, but because they're servants of Christ. And as his servants, they are demonstrating the example of Christ. Okay, so Paul is saying some really, really hard things to this church in Corinth. But he's not saying it because he's bitter. He's saying it because Paul has a pastor's heart. 
He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. That means to warn you as my beloved children. This is biblical pastoral care at its best. You know, some people have the idea that pastoral care is you go to visit the person, you listen to everything they have to say, you affirm them that they are in the right, you pray that things will work out as they hope, and you bless them as you leave. That's not pastoral care. At least it's not biblical pastoral care. Paul is admonishing them. He is warning them as a parent warns their child, not because he wants them to be ashamed, not to win an argument, but because he is a servant of Christ. And as a servant of Christ, he wants to see the children of God grow. Now, if a child was to swear at their teacher, what would you think of the parents of that child if they were to pat the head, pat the head of that child and say, he's learning to express himself? We wouldn't think much of that, would we? And yet, isn't it hard? Maybe we even think it's condescending if somebody dare to warn or correct us or to discipline those within their care. How we take correction says a lot about ourselves, whether we're spiritual or whether we're puffed up with self-righteous arrogance. Paul had a very special relationship with this church. And as we read this letter, we can't help but sense his hurt. He planted this church. He introduced them to Christ. And while they have countless guides, he says, you don't have many fathers. So in verse 18, he says something that not many ministers would dare to say, and I don't think I'd ever say it. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Now, does that mean Paul's perfect? Of course not. But what he's saying is don't be arrogant, don't be puffed up, don't act as if you're the source of all knowledge and everybody else is in fear. You see, Paul has been modelling for them the way of the cross, the way of self-sacrifice, the way of Christ. And so he was urging them to imitate him in that. Why imitate him? Because he's imitating Christ. He's saying some really hard stuff here. But this isn't the first time that he's tried to correct them. When he first heard they were going off the rails, he, he sent a very trusted fellow missionary, Timothy, to try and sort them out. And his task was to try to remind them of what Paul teaches in every church that he goes to, all right? This isn't just a requirement we're putting on you Corinthians. This is, this is the way it is in every church. And Timothy went along to, to remind them of this, but it obviously didn't achieve what Paul had hoped. In Paul's absence, uh, some of them were ruling the roost and they thought, well, he's obviously not coming back again. He's only just sent his underling along. Uh, but he assured them, I am coming. God willing. But then he, he asks a question which we wouldn't expect a pastor type person to ask. And he says, what are you going to be like when, when I come back? 
Am I going to come with a big stick? Or am I going to come in a spirit of love and gentleness? See, what sort of a visit it was going to be was going to be up to the Corinthians. There is a time for a pastor to be gentle and a time for him to take a firm stand. We've covered a lot of ground today in chapter 4. How would I sum up chapter 4? Our pastors or our ministers are servants of Christ. Are they perfect? Of course not. In chapter 3, we learned don't think too highly of them. Don't put them up on a pedestal. This week, we've learned don't think too lowly of them. We are not to judge them. God will be their judge. But God is also our judge. And so we shouldn't get all puffed up in the attitude that we've got it all sorted. We don't even need a teacher. We know it. Or we shouldn't have the view that the minister is our servant. He's there to serve us. That's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is the way of the cross the way of self-sacrifice, the way of putting ourselves last for the sake of the others. I said before, um, one of the pointers when a minister gave me when I first began learning to preach, another one said to me, you know, Michael, preaching is really finding 52 different ways to say the same thing every Sunday. Because he said, you've always got to bring it back to the gospel. Unless you preach the gospel, it's not good news. You've always got to bring it back to the gospel. The kingdom of God isn't about talk. It's about the power of God. The task of the preacher is to always bring it back to the gospel. The power of the gospel is that in Christ, there is complete forgiveness. In Christ, there is complete reconciliation and bringing back together and mending of broken relationships. There is complete holiness for those who give up and confess and are washed by the blood of Jesus. And when we realise this, we realise that no one is better than the other. Without Christ, I'm wretched. Without Christ, you're wretched. In Christ, together we are holy. This is the basis we come together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you For our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we want to thank you for the good news of the gospel. Lord, we want to thank you for all those people who you have sent as your preachers and teachers into the world. Lord, we thank you for the apostles who got the ball rolling. We thank you for all faithful ministers who have followed 
as they take the gospel all over the world and as they preach the good news of Jesus in gatherings and churches all over the world. Lord, we thank you for this. Lord, you've, in the scriptures today, you, you had very hard words to say to that church in Corinth. You had very hard words to say to certain leaders. So far as we've been going in this series as a teacher, I've heard very hard words said to teachers. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take these hard words and that you would move our hearts that we would change the areas of our lives, that we would confess areas of wrongdoing in our lives. And Lord, I personally confess that sometimes I've had wrong attitudes of people who have been my teachers and my leaders. God, forgive me. Lord, just as Paul said, I don't do these things to make you ashamed, but I do this to warn you. Lord, may we hear your warning to us today in whatever way we need to hear it. And Lord, help us to embrace life. Lord, help us to follow that example that Paul set as the way of self-sacrifice as he follows the way of Christ. Lord, give us strength and endurance. Lord, give us a love for our brother or sister in Christ that we can walk this road together. In Jesus' name, amen.